This week's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. As you could guess, we have another awesome collection of stories for you this week. I hope you all really enjoy them. Let us begin as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Never Go Ghost Hunting in Southern Alabama Written by Horror Queen 1212 Cassie and Mike have been close friends since middle school. People always confused them for a couple, but the truth was, was that they were just close friends. They both had a fascination with the supernatural that most people wouldn't subscribe to. Now in their 20s, they have found a new hobby to quench that fascination. Ghost hunting. On weekends and holiday breaks, they like to travel to different places across America that were rumored to be haunted. They've been to asylums, prisons, and just good old-fashioned houses said to house restless souls. Their dream was to find proof of the supernatural. They would take their cameras to record any paranormal events, though their track record was dubious at best. They had recorded creaking floorboards and odd sounds, usually created by the clanking of old pipes or the push from unnoticed drafts, but they hadn't truly found any concrete evidence of the supernatural. They just needed one good location, one good story of a haunting to tell. They yearned for it. They had been shooting an investigation in a supposedly haunted house in Alabama. It had all the makings for the typical haunted house. The house was old and creepy, still furnished in an old-fashioned style. It had been the site of multiple crimes, including a murder. The only thing missing to make it the perfect haunted house was ghosts. All the footage that Cassie and Mike obtained was of them randomly yelling, Hey, are there any spirits who want to come forward? Or, we mean you no harm. To be honest, they all looked pretty stupid. When the two were finished, they packed up their equipment and returned to the small motel that they were currently staying at. There was a small bar just up the road, and the two decided to put their things away and then venture off to it to drink their frustrations away. The place was small with only five tables and the actual bar itself. The regular bar patrons were quietly drinking away as they came in. They ordered their drinks and they sat down. We're never gonna find a real haunting, Cassie said after a minute of silence. Are we just wasting our time? Maybe, said Mike. Hey, but at least we're making memories with it. Still, just once, I would like to see some real paranormal activity, she said morosely. An elderly man sitting at one of the nearby tables interrupted them. It was clear that he was drunk. 
You wanna go to a real haunted place? You should head up to the Berenstain Plantation. A little known except for the people around these parts, but certainly the most haunted place you'll ever find. Pete, shut up and just drink your beer, the man next to him said. What? These two kids want to see some ghosts. Well, let them see some. The man hiccuped before taking another drink. The dead should be left in peace, his friend said. Peace, peace. There's no peace for the souls who died here. Pete turned to Cassie and Mike. That place was the spot of great evil. What's so interesting about this place? Mike cut in. What makes it such a hot spot? Why, the history, of course. The man exclaimed excitedly. Story goes that over 20 workers perished at the hands of Barristan's wife, Annalise. She enjoyed doing things to the workers. It was like a game to her. Horrible, horrible things that can't even be spoken. And she did it all just for fun. Sometimes she would use an excuse or a mistake that the worker did. But other times she didn't even bother with that. Was she ever brought to justice? Asked Cassie. Well, not by the law, but she got what was coming for her, the man said. It all came to a head one day when Annalise was beaten up one of the workers named Margaret. Margaret's brother, Samuel Young, took a giant branch from an old oak tree and stabbed Annalise through the stomach. She died, and Samuel was taken up and he was taking care of for what he had done. It's said that he was smiling the whole time, even in death. Oh, stop it, the other man said. It's just a scary story. Who knows how much, if any of it, is even true. It is so. Pete turned to the young friends. If you don't believe me, then go see it for yourselves. Keep going south and then make a left on Parsons Road. You'll know you're there when you see the two large iron gates. Cassie and Mike looked at each other and shrugged. They had nothing better to do. Might as well check out this detour. They got up and thanked Pete before going back to their cheap motel room. They were too tired from the previous investigation. And they wanted to be sharp if they were actually going to go check this place out. They would have to wait until the next morning. When the sun rose, Cassie and Mike packed their things and headed in the direction that old Pete had given them. They almost turned around when they came across the iron gates that he had spoken about. They made it up to them, and they were wrapped in overgrown plants. That wasn't all that they were wrapped in. The gates were all chained and bolted shut, so the two friends had no choice but to abandon their mode of transportation, their car. They climbed the property walls with the help of the great overgrown vines entangling most of the property. After a minute, they finally made it over, careful not to do any damage to their cameras, and then they began to walk. The manor was about half a mile away from the gates. Looking around, one could easily imagine a thriving place where the plant life had since taken over. To the right of the manor was an old wooden building that looked like it had been eaten away by termites and harsh weather. This is probably where the workers stayed at, 
they would visit there after the manor. The once undoubtedly beautiful manor was now missing its front door. Cobwebs shrouded every corner and everything was thick with dust. There was a large suitcase in the middle of the room that stopped at a small piece of floor before breaking off in two directions. On that floor was a giant painting. It was a portrait of two people. They turned their cameras on and slowly made their way up the stairs. Once on the landing, they took an up-close look at the painting. There was a stern-looking man standing behind a chair. He was older and he looked very mean. This had to have been Master Berenstain. In the chair sat a beautiful southern belle. Her smile warm and her blue eyes hypnotizing. Annalise certainly didn't look like the monster she was rumored to be. If anything, her husband was the one who looked evil. They decided to go up the left set of stairs. They made it to an old door and they pushed it open, causing a loud creaking sound. This room looked to be a home office. They walked to the giant desk in the middle of the room, recording everything that they could see. They rummaged through old documentation for a long time, before they found anything of interest. Hey, look at this, Mike said as he was flipping through a giant booklet. Cassie walked over and checked it out. On each page was a picture of a worker, their name, and any information pertaining to them, including the date and cause of death. My god, there has to be over 50 people in here, Cassie said breathlessly. Look at this. Mike said. Most of these show how and when they died, but some of them have the cause of death left blank. They stood silently, almost as if not wanting to insult the dead with their inadequate words. Suddenly, they heard the sound of feet frantically running down the hallway. At that exact same time, their camera stopped working leaving pixels and white noise as the only things the screen were picking up. The white noise kept getting louder and louder until it was turning into almost a screeching sound. When it became too unbearable, they finally turned the cameras off. There was a strong sense of not being alone. I think somebody wants their privacy, Mike said unnerved. They had always wanted to experience the supernatural, and it seemed like they had finally gotten their wish. They both walked out of the room shakily, following the directions of the footsteps. They kept walking when a door to the right burst open. Cassie let out a scream of shock as Mike felt like his heart was going to explode. They paused before slowly walking into the room. It was a bedroom, huge with a four-poster bed, and judging by the decor, it would have belonged to a woman. I think this was Annalise's room, said Cassie. They walked around the room slowly, 
Cassie ended up at a grand nightstand adorned with gold trimming and beautiful little trinkets. She picked up an oddly shaped painted bowl. Inside was a pearl necklace and a few rings. The material of the bowl was like nothing she had ever felt though. It was almost like ivory. She looked up at her reflection when she noticed two distinct holes reflecting on the other side of the bowl. Curious, she turned the bowl around to get a better look at it. She stared for a while as if trying to put a puzzle together when she shrieked and dropped it, jewelry flying everywhere. It's a skull, she yelled. What? Mike said. The bowl, it's, it's a skull, or at least a part of one. She looked like she was going to be sick. I want to get out of here now. Just wait, Mike said, stopping Cassie from sprinting out of the room. When we finally find a place that looks like it's truly haunted, this is what we came here for. Um, no, I didn't come here to touch a human skull, Cassie said angrily. I'm guessing whoever it belonged to didn't want their head used as a decorative dish. Cassie, we've hit the jackpot. You can't seriously. He stopped, looking over Cassie's shoulder. Cassie turned around and stared in amazement. Standing in the doorway was Annalise. She looked like exactly how she was in the picture. A large hoop skirt dress. A large necklace adorning her neck. Delicate, chocolate brown curls were styled beautifully upon her head. She was gorgeous with delicate features and large eyes. The only difference was that those beautiful facial features were set in a furious expression. You dare come in my room. The voice seemed distant, like it didn't belong in this plane of existence. Ah, Mike screamed the back of his shirt torn from what looked like a scratch mark. Get out, get out, get out! The spirit screamed. This time, Mike didn't have a problem with leaving, and they both booked it, running down the hallway. They thought leaving the manor would be enough, but to their surprise, they saw that the ghost of Annalise was following them right behind them. They made it outside, but Cassie tripped in a route pushed out of the unkempt ground and she yelped as she had twisted her ankle. Mike knelt beside her to try to help her up, but a force pushed him to the ground. They both looked up as the spirit loomed over them. I shall take the skin off your backs, and she raised her hand in the air. The friends closed their eyes in anticipation, but the blows never came. They opened their eyes to see Annalise looking behind them in fear. They cautiously turned around, scared of what they would see. Behind them stood a large man in old, worn-out clothing. He was glaring at Annalise as if he was daring her to bring the whip down. Both spirits stood there for a moment before Annalise disappeared. Cassie and Mike turned to the man in fear. His facial expression softened as he looked upon them. You're okay now, he said in that same distant way. My name is Samuel. Are you Samuel Young? Cassie asked. So you've heard of me, he said with a tint of pride in his voice. The lady of the house feared hell, so she stayed in this plane. 
I wasn't about to let her torment these spirits in the grounds too hurt to find rest. I lived a worker for their family, he continued, but I died a hero, and now I am my own master as well as the greatest nightmare of Annalise Berenson. They were silent for a moment before Mike spoke. It still lives on, Mike said. He felt a sense of hopelessness, like evil would live forever. Hatred, evil, it's always there. I know, said Samuel simply. And there will always be people like me to put a stop to it. And with that, Samuel disappeared. The friends that left the property, their career as ghost hunters was over. But a lightness they hadn't experienced before was just beginning to bloom. I would like to extend a large thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring this week's episode. Hey guys, I'm sure you've heard me mention it before, but I really do think HelloFresh is an amazing way to step up your grub game. I was skeptical at first, but after seeing how well prepared the deliveries are, and tasting how great their meals can be, I'm beyond convinced. On top of being delicious, HelloFresh lets me cut grocery trips out of my routine entirely, which saves a ton of time in the long run. Man, there's a ton of variety. HelloFresh even has fit and wholesome recipes for satisfying and nutritious meals that you can feel good about with six recipes per week to choose from, including low-calorie and carb-conscious options. Last night, I whipped up a Jamaican-inspired curry beef bowl with ginger rice and it was amazing. The quality is always top-notch with HelloFresh, which leads to delicious results. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Thank you to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Those beneath the waters of Mariposa Lake in Yellowstone National Park. Written by Human Gravy. The graffiti in our apartment building was the literal writing on the wall needed for my parents to uproot us from New York City back in the early 90s. With the rise in violence in the streets and in the schools, nowhere felt safe. Drugs were dealt openly on the street corners and at the playgrounds. When my mother walked us to school, we would see it, and my mom would tell us to look the other way. A few girls in my sister's grade were already pregnant. It was a certainty that we would end up on the wrong side of the law, as the lines were drawn and territories in our neighborhood were claimed through violence and intimidation. My parents didn't have a ton of money, Dad was the handyman for an office building in Manhattan. Mom worked at the top tomato supermarket down the street. They managed to save the funds needed to buy, a miserable excuse for a house in the suburbs of New Jersey. It was leaps and bounds better than living in a one-bedroom apartment in what was becoming a war zone. Their timing on the house was excellent, as the closing lined up with the end of the school year, 
We had moved into the house over the summer and started school in the new district in the fall. Everything was going right in life as we coasted through until the last day of school. The day that my sister passed away. After the dismissal bell rang, I went into the schoolyard to meet my sister at the regular waiting spot, so we would walk home together. Usually, my mother came to get us, but she covered for a co-worker who was late that day. As I exited the building, I heard a bunch of yelling and then gunshots. I didn't realize what was happening, and I froze in place. I remember watching people fall to the ground, running for their lives and screaming. Then all of a sudden, I felt someone's arm wrap around me. They brought me to the ground and squeezed so tight that I could hardly breathe. When it was all over, the only sounds that I heard were police sirens in the distance, scattered voices calling out to friends or siblings, and the calls and cries of those injured in the fight. I can't tell you how long I laid beneath my sister's body. Someone had pulled her off of me. I think it was a cop or a paramedic. I don't know for sure, my memory is pretty hazy here. All I can recall is seeing my sister lying on the ground with her eyes wide open, unmoving, unbreathing. I remember someone taking me away from the body as medical personnel came and tried to save her. They couldn't. A stray bullet had struck and killed her. A shot meant for me. In the days after her death, the agonized cries of my mother and father filled the house. I remember crying a lot too. Phone calls were made to family living overseas and in other states to arrange the funeral. Days later, my sister was in the ground. Her body was laid to rest in a cemetery near our new home so we could visit her without having to return to the city again. And up until now, my 35th year on this earth, I haven't been back to New York City. Our family's previous excitement about starting a new life in a new home was gone. The house, much larger than our one-bedroom apartment in the city, felt even more empty without her there. It felt wrong. Her bedroom sat empty, never to be filled with her laughter or the music that she liked to play on the radio. We mourned her for the rest of our lives, especially me. I would have nightmares about that day, even now. At the sound of fireworks going off or cars backfiring. I'm a kid again in the schoolyard, and I panic. For years, I blamed myself for her death, even if mom, dad, and everyone else told me that it wasn't my fault. And if it hadn't been for me, she would still be alive. When I got older, I thought of ending it myself, doing and thinking about various things that would give me pain and help to fill the emptiness inside of me. I think I would have followed through on it if my mom hadn't noticed these scars on my arms and legs. They got me on antidepressants, therapy, the whole nine yards to help me out, but nothing ever made me feel right. My parents' reaction to this made me realize how difficult and painful their lives would become to lose another child. At first, I didn't want to deal with all these psychological bullcrap, but seeing how hurt and upset they were, I decided to see if it could help me. 
They said that it was post-traumatic stress, survivor's guilt. I carried a burden for decades until I visited Yellowstone National Park, and my life changed forever after. At the suggestion of my therapist, I took up hiking as a hobby to get myself out of the house, physically active and gaining a new perspective on the world. It helped a bit. Being out in nature and seeing the natural world for the wonder that it was, I came to love exploring around in the woods. It was a far cry from the concrete jungle of New York and the planned, artificial conformity of the suburbs. I felt most at peace in what felt like the middle of nowhere. I didn't feel as if I had to worry with no one around. I felt liberated. Seeking out this catharsis is what led me to Yellowstone. After a business trip to California, I had the perfect opportunity to go there. I let my boss know that I would take some time off to explore the national parks out there. I had been out to Yosemite on previous trips, so I wanted to check out something different this time and sink my teeth into it for real. Usually, I would try to find someone else to come explore with me, but for some reason, I felt as if this was something I wanted to do alone. My first couple of days there were uneventful. I followed the trail, took pictures, and made camp when the sun had started to set. The next day, I would wake with the sunrise and continue the journey onward. Let me tell you, the earth is magnificent when humans aren't around to ruin everything. Streams and rivers flow with water so clear that you can see to the bottom. The mountains loomed in the distance clearly. There wasn't any smog or pollution obstructing the view. It all makes a person understand how small and insignificant they are in the world. Yet maybe this isn't actually true. Perhaps we're all worlds into ourselves. When a person dies, a whole universe dies with them. After what I had experienced, I am certain this is more the case than anything else. After a long day, I reached Mariposa Lake and called it a day. Setting up camp didn't take long. Dinner went without a hitch. Exhausted, I settled into the tent for the night, set the alarm for sunrise, and allowed exhaustion to carry me off to sleep. I don't know how long I slept before I awoke to a voice speaking outside of my tent. It sounded close, yet I couldn't make out any of the words. It startled me awake as it was something completely unexpected. Seeing other hikers along the way wasn't rare, but having someone approach my camp in the middle of the night didn't leave me with a good feeling. It was the middle of September. The temperature was close to 30 degrees that night. For someone to travel in the near-complete darkness in such cold and dark, they must have either been in trouble or looking to cause problems. The folding shovel was the closest thing that I had to a weapon. Rooting it around the inside of my tent, I tried to find where I had left it. I didn't dare turn on the light as I didn't want the intruder to know that I was awake. I could keep the elements of surprise intact until the last possible moment. I realized that it didn't make sense right away. If someone wanted to hurt me, they wouldn't have announced themselves to keep the element of surprise for themselves. As soon as this realization hit me, I felt the cold bite of carbon steel and I wrapped my hand around the handle. 
The voice spoke up again. This time it was closer, only a few feet outside of the tent. Prepared to greet or fight my new companion, I unzipped the flap and quickly looked around outside. A thick rolling fog enveloped the campsite. Visibility was close to nothing as it seemed to swallow reality like a floating gray ocean of mist. The silence didn't help matters either. I didn't hear any footsteps. No crunching of grass or soil. All I heard was the sound of my own heart beating in my ears and the quickening of my breath. Again, I heard the voice speak out from just beyond the fog. As it spoke, sparks of blue electricity flashed through the fog. It became clearer. It was a woman's voice. It sounded familiar, but I couldn't place it. I called out into the fog, telling the person to follow my voice to my campsite. I got no response. I called out again, asking if anyone was injured. This time, the voice replied as if it were right beyond the edge of the fog, still obscured yet close enough to be heard. The voice was clear this time. It told me to meet it just beyond the fog. As it told me to come, the blue electrical spark spread open a path through the mist. I didn't move. My mind went back to a childhood memory. My sister with the telephone in her hand, talking to one of her friends. I was holding a Nintendo game in my hand. I think that it was Super Mario 3, and I was begging her to play with me. Her face scrunched up with annoyance, telling me to leave her alone. I remember feeling so disappointed as I went off to play by myself. A few minutes later, she came to the television and grabbed her remote so we could play together. It made me so happy. The memory brought a smile to my face as I realized the voice in the woods belonged to my sister. Now of course that didn't make sense. I was dreaming I had to be, but I knew that I wasn't. I yanked my boots on and charged out of my tent and into the fog. I called out my sister's name, feeling insanely stupid to think it really was her out there. Maybe it was a woman whose voice sounded oddly similar. This self-doubt dematerialized as I heard her voice again further up ahead. She called my name over and over again, desperately. With each word said, the blue lightning flashed and the fog cleared. I broke out into a sprint. As I hit the edge of Mariposa Lake, the fog cleared up, and a dozen yards up the shore, I saw a man standing on a rowboat. His gaze bore into me. His will demanded that I present myself before him. His sheer strength and dominance pushed me forward. I felt outside myself, watching the scene unfold without control. My mind and body bent to this man's determination. My sister's voice spoke from the lake, saying soothing words and reassuring me that it would all be okay. Approaching the man sitting on the boat, I felt that he was looking down upon me. It's now that I realized it wasn't a man. He is in something in the shape of a man. This conventional form hid the truth of his supremacy. The man doesn't move his lips to speak. His thoughts came directly into my mind. He had a knowledge of the universe and all creation. He knew my entire life from start to finish. 
he showed me the end of my life. At least one way it was supposed to end. I was meant to die in the schoolyard. My sister had tripped over another student's book bag and fell to the ground. She didn't make it to where I was standing. She watched the bullet hit me in the chest, and my tiny body fell backward onto the pavement. The world goes dark. A life ended, and so did a universe. Back at Mariposa Lake, the man beckoned me over toward the boat with a finger. I joined him aboard. He stood and pushed off the shore with his paddle. There was no splash when the boat entered the water. Hundreds of hands reached out from the depths of the water. Their skins of pale white, their fingers pruned and waterlogged, reminded me of coiled insects. They held the boat above the water and passed it along like a crowd surfer at a concert. More and more hands reached out and carried us to the middle of the lake. When we had reached our destination, the hand stopped moving and rested beneath the boat holding it in place. The man removed the paddle from the water and then retook his seat. To our right, the water churned violently as the hand swam in a circle, creating a massive whirlpool. Within this maelstrom, I saw the bodies. Hundreds, thousands, millions of bodies swirled downward into the lake. Their faces were placid and serene, like babies sleeping in their mother's womb. It made me jealous. I wanted to join them in their eternal, soggy slumber. I set my foot on the side of the boat. With a single push, I would join those gentle souls underneath and carry the man's boat forever. Just as I had made up my mind, the man reached out with a skeletal hand and dragged me back to my seat. He let me know that this was not the purpose that I was brought to this place. My sister's voice then called out from the inside of the whirlpool. At first, I saw the little girl who had saved my life standing before me upon a platform made of waterlogged and bloated bodies. And then within the blink of an eye, I saw a teenage girl, then a young woman and then a middle-aged woman, and finally an elderly senior. She was all of these and none of these. She did not live. This is all that could have been and never was. My sister's voice pulled me from my thoughts and set me at ease. Her incorporeal form glowed in electric blue, as did the water and the fog surrounding the lake. It was beautiful and hideous. Our conversation wasn't long. It wasn't something that was supposed to happen. In the grand scheme of the universe, there's a firm line between the worlds of the living and the dead. For her to return to this plane of existence, only to speak so briefly was a gift from the cosmos. Or perhaps I had lost my sanity. But once again, she took care of me when it mattered the most. She told me that her death was not my fault. The guilt, shame, and regret I felt throughout my life were misplaced. Her decision to shield me from the bullet was a sacrifice that she would make over and over again. It was the best decision of her short life. She now rested with those beneath the waves in peace. With those final words, all the versions of my sister, which had never existed, gave a smiling goodbye before the platform of bodies descended back into the whirlpool. The maelstrom collapsed, 
and the lake returned to its normal state once more. My sister was gone again, this time for good. The man stood from his seat and once more, the hands reached out to carry us back to the shore. Once again, on terra firma, the man told me to go straight back to my cab, or else I would be lost in the fog forever. He also tells me to leave Yellowstone the way that I had come in. I departed from the shore and dared not look back at the man or Mariposa Lake. The fog no longer crackled with electricity, blue or otherwise. The alarm rang right as the sun rose. I felt tired, emotionally drained and bewildered about the previous night. I didn't remember falling asleep. How could anyone sleep after that? My mind was racing. My adrenaline was pumping. When did I fall asleep? When I came out of the tent, the fog had vanished. The wilderness surrounded me again. There wasn't a single cloud in the sky. Still, I heeded the man's warning and packed up my encampment. I headed back down in the direction from where I had left. The nice weather didn't last long as rain showers had doused the landscape. The freezing cold rain soaked me from head to toe. Visibility was awful. Even with the proper gear, it still wasn't easy. I wanted to camp a few times to wait for the rains to pass, but I felt the man's warning to leave Yellowstone meant sooner rather than later. When I arrived back in civilization, my rental car was the only vehicle in the parking lot. I tossed my belongings into the trunk and immediately headed for the airport. The flight was uneventful and I slept six hours back across the country. It was the first time I felt genuinely rested since I was a kid. I never told anyone that this had happened to me. I didn't want them to think that I was on drugs or going crazy. There's enough stigma against people with mental health issues as it is. I haven't hiked since it happened, but I'm dying to get out there again and see more of the world. There are other trails out there to hike, other places to explore, to enjoy, and experience before our inevitable end. We don't know how much time we have left in this world before. It's our time to join those beneath the waters. I'm an anthropologist and I think I just discovered the origin of the uncanny valley. Written by Beardify. One of my earliest memories is a row of skulls, or rather, skull replicas. H. Habilis, H. Erectus, H. Neanderthalensis, H. Florensensis. I remember feeling around my child-sized head for any similarities. In retrospect, that was the start of my career. I'm a paleoanthropologist, and my field of specialty is the interaction between Homo sapiens and our closest hominid relatives. For a fascinating period, we shared our icy and inhospitable planet with beings that were like us, but different. We fought, traded, and even mated with them yet we know so little about what their lives were like. 
That's why it felt like the find of the century at first. The intact skeletons, or at least three different types of hominids, dating to at least 50,000 years ago, preserved perfectly by volcanic ash. The suddenness of the eruption captured the scene so perfectly that it almost seemed frozen in time. If not for that, what we found wouldn't feel so disturbing. We can imagine the dig as divided into three sites, A, B, and C. Site A is simply put, a pit of bones. My intent is to not exaggerate or frighten, but I've been at this dig for over three weeks and we've yet to reach the bottom. Thousands of bone sapiens, Neanderthalinus, and others, all mixed together over who knows how much time. Many of the bones show evidence of being chewed on, as though the flesh had been stripped from them shortly before their deaths. That's Site A. And then there's Site B. This area consists of a single large stone and five hominid skeletons, two age Neanderthalensis and three age Sapiens. Their positions as well as surrounding artifacts, such as the remains of Hydecord, suggest that all three were bound hand and foot and then heaped up in preparation for something possibly some kind of sacrifice, or even butchery for meat. Finally, Site C consists of the remains of one male H. sapiens, one female H. neanderthalensis, and one set of remains yet to be identified. Although these are far from scientific terms, I like to call this one the action scene. The unidentified hominid appears to have been attacked by the other two, who judging by the hide-cord remains around their wrists and ankles, were attempting to escape. Their desperate attack appears to have failed just before the entire scene was preserved in ash. The female age Neanderthalensis suffered a shattered wrist and two broken ribs. A broken flint axe was found near the male-age sapiens, whose spine had been snapped near the neck. While I dusted off and arranged the bones of the third, unidentified hominid, I couldn't help but wonder, did you do this? The third hominid found at Site C is, quite frankly, like nothing we've ever seen before. At first, I thought I was looking at a standard H. Sapiens, until several things stopped making sense. Firstly, Subject C, as we call her, has arms, fingers, and incisors much longer than any other known hominid. Secondly, her bones themselves appear changeable. Her still sharp incisors could have been retracted, likewise for her freakishly long fingers. 
even her skull, which is found appeared more ape-like than hominid, seemed modular. This hominid would have been capable of rearranging her facial features. If she had wanted to, Subject C could have changed her appearance to look like an ordinary human. He arrived at the dig the day after Subject C was found. He came at night in a black helicopter, whose whirring rotary blades woke me up from a bad dream. At first, I didn't understand what I was seeing in the searchlight's glow. A hulking figure in a gray three-piece suit, followed by two bodyguard types, also in business clothing. No one else had been scheduled at the site. Least of all, anyone so unequipped for the rugged and remote environment that we were working in. From there, the mystery only deepened. The dig site was managed by Dr. Karlchan, a legend in the field, who had been leading expeditions like ours while I was still in diapers. Karlchan could be counted on for three things. His dedication to science, his obsessive attention to detail, and his hair-trigger temper. As these strangers crossed the site... I watched him storm, red-faced, out of his quarters. He held on his hat, his beard blowing around in the helicopter's artificial wind. Karl-chan looked like he was about to give the new arrivals an earful for the disturbance. But after a few close whispers, he went back to bed, quiet and submissive. We're going to be sharing management of the dig from this point forward. Koro-chan told us the next morning at breakfast. His voice was hoarse, his face pale and haggard. So please, let's all try to just get along. Get along? I couldn't believe it. This was a man who had beaten an intern with a hardback copy of on the origin of species, because the unfortunate teenager had forgotten to clean his brushes. The Dr. Mark Korolchan, who I knew, wouldn't share management of a sandbox. Shouts and questions flew through the air, like we were all reporters at a presidential press conference and war had just been declared. The answers that we got back were evasive and unsatisfactory. The new arrivals were from a respected institute, and they were here to ensure the quality and accuracy of our research. Koral-chan had absolute faith in their ability to make the right decisions on behalf of our group, and we were to treat them with the utmost respect. Most of that told us exactly nothing, except for the last bit. There was a fear and a warning in Korochan's heart at Turquoise eyes. He was telling us to be careful around our uninvited guests. The powdered eggs and instant coffee became a knot in my stomach. 
what the heck was going on? With no new information forthcoming, I headed over to Site C, where I would set up the three hominids on separate exam tables, each bone laid out and marked. I was about to go back and continue excavating the site, when I felt this strange tingle in the back of my neck. A hulking shadow fell over the middle table. I heard my name, and before I knew it, I had been clamped in an eager two-palmed handshake. The big man that I had seen leaving the helicopter the night before introduced himself as Dr. Lemire and insisted to know how I was doing, if I had everything that I needed. His manner of speech reminded me of the television preachers of my childhood. An endless stream of honey-sweet, bathwater warm words meant to put the listener at ease and set them up for a pitch. And Dr. Lemire feigned interest in all of my specimens, but his beady, hazel eyes kept darting back to the middle table and subject C. Truly fascinating. He was standing over her now, looking almost lovingly down at the skull below. Have you found any others like her? I responded in the negative. Not even fragments. Perhaps partially destroyed elements that could be identified. I shook my head again. We've reached the bottom of the ash layer all around the site. I sighed unhappily. At breakfast, I had made a silent promise to limit how much I would share with these unwelcome outsiders. And yet, there was something weird about Lemire that made me want to pour my heart out to him. My doubts about the dig, my own abilities, my choice of career, I mean everything. It felt almost pheromonal, and it was deeply unsettling. I was soon rambling bitterly in spite of myself. The chances of finding another like Subject C are extremely slim. Without further evidence, she is likely to be classified as an anomaly instead of... Instead of... Lemire asked sharply. Instead of a new species of hominid, radically different in the physiology, brain capacity, and probably culture as well. I perked up, but there are many hominids known by only a single fossil, sometimes even a jawbone. Genetic testing will tell us more. Well, I imagine all your data on her is stored on your university hard drive, yes? Lemire's eyes drifted to my computer setup on a nearby table. Well, yes, but... Excellent. The two bodyguard types appeared as if out of nowhere. With horror, I realized that they were preparing to disassemble my computer. Hey, I shouted. Lemire looked at me coolly, all the kindness gone from his expression. Much care must be taken with a specimen like this. Such an incredible find must be stored in the best facilities and studied by top experts in the field.
Wouldn't you agree? Uh, are you questioning my professionalism? I stammered. I couldn't believe it. Weeks of work, the crown jewel of my research. No, Subject C is my find. She belongs to. This site and everything in it belongs to your university doctor, who funded the dig. I have here a signed agreement granting me custody of Subject C and all relevant findings. I snapped the paper out of Lemire's hands, a petulant gesture of helpless rage. I didn't have a leg to stand on, and Lemire knew it. The fine print was just the nail in the coffin, my coffin. I was counting on this dig, this publication. I understand how upsetting this must be for you, Lemire commented, like we were discussing the weather instead of my life. But I'm convinced that in time you'll see it for the best. Although I couldn't remember the last time that I had cried, I felt hot tears welling up in the corners of my eyes. It wasn't fair. You're concerned about what research you can present from this dig, I'm sure. Publish or perish, isn't that what the saying is? Lemire clapped me on the shoulder. Well, no need to worry. Your cooperation today won't be forgotten. Who knows, you might see renewed interest in your older publications. Maybe even a book deal. Who knows what your future might hold. If you keep your mouth shut. Although the threat was only implied, it came across crystal clear. Even so, a vague sense of calm flooded through me. I felt drunk, even a bit dizzy. Maybe this was the right thing to do, after all. Lemire would take care of everything. With his big, strong hands and wise eyes, he was a man to trust. Putting Subject C into the care of such a man should have been my idea all along. Wait, this was all Lemire and I was sure of it. Somehow he was manipulating my emotions, but there was a problem. A fly in the ointment. It had been the paper he had shown me. If only I could remember what it was. How did you know? I muttered under my breath. Hmm? Lemire turned around from where he had been supervising the breakdown of my equipment. In this paper, you presented to the university. You provided a detailed description of her. I pointed to the fanged, human-like skeleton on the middle table. And yet no one outside of this dig should have had any idea that such a creature ever existed. Lemire crossed his arms. I couldn't tell if he was pleased or disappointed. Behind him, my evidence was being carried away in waterproof boxes. We were alone. He took a step toward me and then another, until our noses were almost touching. His presence was even more intoxicating up close. It made me want to swoon like the protagonist of a Victorian novel. As stupid as it sounds, I fixated on his shiny black shoes. If I looked anyplace else, I felt sure that I would faint or be hypnotized or... Lemire used two fingers to lift my chin up to meet his gaze. With horror, I realized his fingers had extended almost twice the normal length. His face broke and shifted until I was looking at something with long incisors, ape-like eyes, and movable features. In short, something very much like Subject C. It smiled.
I do repairs for NASA and discovered something horrifying about their telescopes. Written by Alpha Cola. My name is... Well, I can't tell you that. You're not supposed to know because I'm not supposed to be alive. Technically, I'm not alive. But I'll get to that. There are two things that I want to get out of the way. First, those of you with any background in physics will fight me on just about everything that I say. I know it doesn't make sense, but it is what it is. And second, if you hate the feeling that you're always being watched, you should just stop reading. It's only going to get worse. Alright, now that I've gotten that all out of the way, I'll tell you my story. I'm part of a small group of astronauts that are sent to places around the solar system to fix things that NASA doesn't want the public knowing about. Usually it's just things in orbit like satellites, but I've gone to the moon twice now so that's something. The moon is, well, I'll save that for another time. One particular day, I was sitting on my back porch looking out into the country field. The weather was just perfect, not too warm but not cold either, and the wind was just warm enough that it didn't bring a chill, and the sunset was really beautiful that day. The clouds looked like waves in the ocean, ablaze with orange light and a blue-green backdrop. That's the kind of stuff that I live for. Thankfully, my salary can pay for a nice ranch that gives me all the nice things in life. And then, of course, my phone rang inside the house. Its gentle chime floated through the screen door, beckoning me to answer. I sighed, and then rose from the creaky wooden rocker that I had been sitting on for the past hour or so. I headed into the house, silent as a mouse, and snatched the phone from its place on the wall. Brooken speaking, I said, sure to let a bit of irritation flood through my tone. Yes, it's Sanders. We need you for a mission. The man on the other end of the line said, it was my boss. Sanders hadn't been there when I had first joined the program, but he had been my boss the longest. He also knew never to call me during the sunset. Do you know what time it is? I ask, ignoring him. He thinks for a second. That's right, I thought we were in the same time zone. My apologies. He said sincerely. All I ever asked was not to be called during sunset. I would do any mission, just never call me at sunset. I sighed. Just let it go, I told myself. What's the mission? has a lens out of alignment. Machinery on board just can't adjust to it properly, and we need someone up there to slide it back into place, he explained. The Lima Space Telescope was sent up into Mars orbit just a few years ago now, back in 2018. They kept it a secret because of how powerful it was. They were sure that they would find life with that thing. Not sure if they ever did. When do I leave? I asked, already knowing the answer. Right now, he said. Of course. I'm on my way then, I responded, 
and then hung up the phone. I walked back out to my porch to watch the last few minutes of the sunset, and threw on my father's old leather jacket and walked out the door. The drive to the base was pretty long from where I lived, about an hour. When compared to space travel, it was nothing though. But of course, a car isn't nearly as interesting as a ship is. Nevertheless, I came upon the empty spot in the desert and flashed my lights in the pattern that I always flash them, and the entrance to a ramp opened up from the earth, ready to swallow me whole. I drove in, down through the tunnel, and parked my little car in the lot. I even had my own spot, just for me. As soon as I stepped out of my car, a man that I had never met before greeted me. Hello, Brookins. Please, follow me, he said. His hair was long and black, slicked back with oil, and his eyes stared into mine as if he knew something about me that he was trying not to laugh at. I followed him down the hall that I had been down a hundred times before, and into the meeting room I had been in just as often. The escort certainly wasn't necessary, but I didn't say anything as a courtesy. Some things just weren't worth the argument. Please have a seat. He'll be with you shortly, the man said, voice cool, and then he left the room, closing the door softly behind him. I noticed that he loved to stare right into my eyes. A few moments of silence passed before I started to think about the ways that this could go. It could have been an easy assignment, but it also could have been an impossible one. I've been tasked with the latter more times than I can count, but I somehow always pull them off. My father told me that luck runs in the family. After a few more minutes of waiting, all of which I was getting paid for, a woman with shoulder-length black hair walked into the room holding a folder, trailed by two large men in suits. She smiled at me and then held out her hand. It's an honor to meet you, Brookins. I'm Tammy. I'll be accompanying you on your mission today. She smiled. Something about her eyes, it was just like the man that I had seen before. How cold and empty they were. And her voice sounded like she was trying to force emotions in where there shouldn't have been any. People like that are what made me believe that aliens really did exist. It's a pleasure, I simply responded, and then shook her hand. Another man walked into the room. He had white hair and a blue suit. Ah, I see you two are getting acquainted. Good. This mission won't be easy, he ensured. He produced a briefcase from his side and propped it open. Inside was a folder of images. They looked like a machine. I see that in some places there were wires out of place, something slightly off. This is the situation that we're dealing with. We need those wires fixed and the lens put back on track, and the whole thing polished like a baby's bottom, he demanded. I'm sorry, who are you? I asked. He looked at me for a moment as if I was a dumber than a brick. General Argier, he said low and quiet. Gotcha, I simply said. I've never been up close and personal with the Lima. Is there an advanced manual that I can look at? Yes, one will be provided for you on your trip. Arjir responded. On the trip, really? 
It was always best practice to review the process of the repairs before a launch. That way all the correct materials and tools were provided. Tammy must have read my facial expression because as she chimed in. They already know the tools, I know the repair. We need you for your experience. I've only been up there once before, she explained, making an unwavering eye contact. Her head had tilted a little bit, like she had noticed something. Understood. I simply responded, giving her a look. Good, get ready. You leave in an hour. I spent the next 30 minutes or so suiting up, then just waiting for everything to be ready. I had gone through the process plenty of times, and Tammy was certainly a rookie. I'd help her put on her suit and run through the basic stuff so she wouldn't kill herself. We sat next to each other in the shuttle, waiting patiently. I always dreaded this part. They launched us out of a long tube using magnets, and then the thrusters would take us the rest of the way. I almost always blacked out on the initial launch, though. I love this part, Tammy said, smiling like an excited child. I glanced over at her. Why? Well, I like watching everything fade from blue to black, she explained. Something was odd about her. She seemed way too excited for this mission. Your heart rate should be steady before we launch. I suggest taking a rester, I said, reaching for a bottle of pills on the wall. Oh no, it's okay, I'm always like this. The doc said it's fine, she protested. I don't know what doctor would ever tell her that, but I dropped the subject anyway, putting my hands on the flight controls. Control, we're already here, I said into the intercom. I heard silence. Control. Copy that, launching in 30 seconds. A voice that I didn't recognize responded. A weird sensation crept up my spine. The feeling you get when you miss a step when going up a set of stairs. Or a feeling you get when your parents are talking about something and you have no idea what's going on. I still don't know the best way to put it. But it felt like something was happening that they weren't telling me about. It wouldn't be the first time. But all of these people were new. And that rarely happened. The countdown began and I waited for my stomach to sink to my butt. Three, two, one, lift, and we were off. I blacked out of course but woke just as we were exiting the launch tube. Tammy was unconscious still. The thrusters began and we lifted up towards the clouds. I watched Tammy again and saw that she was now awake, smiling constantly like her life was officially complete. The first set of thrusters disconnected, and the second set took us the rest of the way into orbit. Just like Tammy loved, the sky faded from blue to black, and soon the slight curve of the black earth lit by cities filled half of the window beside me. The sun was coming over the horizon as we gained altitude, creating a bright orange lining over the edge of the earth. It was certainly beautiful to see a sunset from space. The automated computer system oriented our shuttle to the correct position, and I hit the glowing green button in the center of the controls. Once again, 
the shuttle picked up an alarming amount of speed. The thrusters used energy from the sun now that we were so exposed to its radiation, which also meant that getting to Mars would only take about two days in total. The ship would automatically accelerate and decelerate in accordance with the route, so I let go of the flight controls. Control, we're go for Mars, no issues to report, I said to the intercom. No response again. Control. Still nothing. And did we lose contact? A few moments later, I heard a staticky voice on the other end of the line. We hear you, Brookins. Clear for Mars. Stay safe out there. The voice said, though, it was yet another voice that I didn't recognize, different from the last time. I didn't respond. Just click the intercom button to send a short click of understanding. Here we are, Tammy said, voice flat. I looked over to her and she was staring through me again. Yeah, I'm gonna go grab some food. You want any? I asked and she shook her head. Oh, not yet. I ate right before launch. When do you want to go over the repairs? She asked. I thought for a moment. I'll take a look at the specs while I eat, and then we can discuss it, I stated. Then unbuckled my seat restraints. I took off my helmet and floated through the hatch door into the main body of the shuttle. It was small, lined with wires and screens. Two beds attached to the wall called my name. I was tired after the long night. I retrieved a small meal out of the cabinet and chowed down in the demoisturized clump of calories until I was satisfied. Over the next two hours, I discussed the plans with Tammy, who never stopped being strange, and then headed to bed, strapping myself into the pouch on the wall. Tammy did the same across from me, and the lights in the cabin dimmed. I fell asleep immediately. I awoke later that night. The cabin was still dark, but Tammy wasn't in her bed. This wasn't uncommon. People who were new to space often had trouble sleeping, so I figured that I would go and check on her. I wished that I had stayed where I was. When I drifted out of my bed and into the piloting booth, I saw Tammy floating in the air, legs crossed like a pretzel, and in the center of her lap was a single camera lens. The open side of it was faced up at her, and she stared directly down into it, eyes glassy. This area of the ship felt cold. Goosebumps traveled up my skin, and the longer that I looked at the lens, the more I felt like a weight was being pressed up against my back and shoulders. My heart rate increased. My palms began to sweat, and Tammy just stared wide-eyed into the abyss of the camera lens. I wanted to speak, to ask her what she was doing, but it felt like that was the worst thing I could do at the moment. When I looked at that lens, it felt like my eyes were full. It felt like mutual understanding and self-consciousness. It felt like beauty and judgment. It was, in all respects, just like staring into someone's eyes that were only a few inches away. Like when you look at the flecks of colors in their eyes and admire all of the ridges and valleys in their iris. And then I looked away. The feeling was gone. 
I floated back to my bed and attempted to sleep, but ended up just closing my eyes. I couldn't trust Tammy. Something about what I had just seen screamed warnings in my mind, so I laid there and listened carefully for Tammy to return. An hour must have passed, but I still didn't hear her. I squinted my eyes open just a crack, just barely enough to let a sliver of light in, and almost screamed in fright at what I saw. A camera lens just inches away from my nose, with Tammy holding it, face smiling right behind it. I could only see her eyes and the puffiness of her cheeks with the angle that I was at, but I knew the grin was malicious. I could see the crazy in her eyes. I kept my composure and shut my eyelids all the way, hoping that she hadn't noticed. I laid there until the lights in the cabin brightened, and a small chime played over the intercom. I opened my eyes, as I now had an excuse, and saw Tammy in her bed, stretching with a yawn as if nothing had happened. I tried not to stare. I didn't want to raise suspicion. Morning, she said with a smile. Hey, these things are comfier than I expected. Yeah, they are. I agreed with a smile. I slid out of my bed and threw a shirt on. Man, we have another day until we arrive. We've already discussed the plans for the maintenance, but I'm just going to go check out the tools to see what we're working with, I said, floating over to the back of the ship, where a closet was located. Okay, I'll think I'll watch a movie. Feel free to join me if you would like, she said. I nodded and opened up the closet. I pretended to check the specifications of each tool until she had drifted away, and then got to the real work. I wasn't looking for a tool, I was looking for a weapon, and I hoped that I wouldn't have to use it, but I would want it to be safe rather than sorry, so I decided on a pressurized nail gun. It would probably take her out if I aimed right, and that's the kind of leverage that I wanted. The way she acted last night, it was more than unsettling, and I've heard of intruders getting on shuttles before. The rest of the trip was completely uneventful. Tammy was weird, of course, and the following night of rest contained no incident with that camera lens. I know because I watched it the whole time. I woke myself up with coffee the next morning. I was dang near dead of exhaustion but I figured it was well worth it, because, just like yesterday, Tammy woke up with a stretch and a yawn, ready for the day. I looked out the window behind me and saw Mars there watching us. In orbit, I saw a bright light suspended there, that I determined to be the telescope that we were told to repair. I took a deep breath, and pressed the intercom button. Control, Mars is in sight. Estimated contact with Lima is 20 minutes over, I said. It would take several minutes for the transmission to reach Earth, so I didn't stress the absence of a reply. And then I heard one. Only 10 seconds later, I could feel Tammy's eyes on my back, like she was waiting to see if I would realize how fast the transmission came in. I knew that if I showed any sort of confusion... It could mean the end for me. So I faked it, of course. Copy that, Brookins. Everything is looking clear on our end. 
proceed with repairs whenever you're ready. A voice said. The static was gone now. The transmission was as clear as day. I didn't reply. Just sighed, trying to look relaxed. I must have failed. You okay, Brookins? Tammy asked from behind me. I turned my head around to her. Yeah, I just haven't been to the big red guy in a while. It's exciting. I replied, and I wasn't lying. Tammy smiled. Oh, I know. I'm excited too. I can't wait to see the telescope. I hear it rivals any other. She agreed. And it didn't strike me as strange that the only thing she cared about was the telescope. Not at the time. But I should have realized it sooner. I'm going to suit up. We arrive in 15 minutes and I would like to get this over with as soon as possible. I admitted. Alright, I'll get the tools together. I'll suit up while you bring us into position. She replied, and we parted ways. I grabbed my suit off the wall and fastened all the brackets together. Pressure checks, seal checks, the works. We were about to be in open space, so now it was no time to slack on safety. I watched Tammy put together the tools in a bag and then zip it up. Hey, can you grab these sealant cream from the front? I asked her. She nodded and drifted up to the pilot's cabin. I quickly grabbed the nail gun from the closet and stuffed it into a pouch on my suit. She came back just in time. I took the cream from her and stuffed it into a different pouch. Hey, thanks. I'll go get us in a position, I said, orienting my body so that she couldn't clearly see the bulge of the nail gun in my suit. Wonderful. Let me know when you're ready, she smiled, and I propelled myself to the pilot seat. We were very close then, so I took manual control and began our insertion into orbit. We were about 100 feet out from the Lima at an equal pace with it. I threw on the autopilot and we were ready to go. I turned around to tell Tammy and briefly saw her stuffing the camera lens into the tool bag. I quickly looked forward again, waiting for a few seconds, and then turned back around. She was checking her suit safeties. All right, we're in place, I said, drifting over to her. Are your systems all good? Yep, all set, she gleamed. I nodded and we both went to the airlock. Control, heading out now, I spoke, then hit the button on the wall that depressurized the cabin. The world grew silent to save my breathing, and a light on the inside of my helmet blinked. We were set to go. Tammy, can you hear her? I read, she responded. I opened the door and nodded. We both drifted out of the shuttle, propelling ourselves with pressurized air packs, and then aimed at the telescope. It truly was a magnificent thing. Its eye was pointed away from us and into deep space. It was easily the size of a horse. It was silver and gold lined with solar panels. And as we drew close, I began to see the damage. It was just like the photographs. One of the mirrors was off its track and wires had been severed. Well, let's get to it, I said, grabbing hold of the side of the telescope. I tethered myself to it, pulling the hook from my waist and took a few tools from the bag, and we got to work. It was difficult to focus on such a thing now, when an entire foreign planet was below me. 
It was half an hour later before I realized that Tammy was nowhere to be found, and terror shot up my spine. Tammy, I asked, no response. I threw my tools in the bag and drifted to the back end of the rocket. Tammy, I asked again, she wasn't there. And then it clicked. The camera lens, how fascinated she was. This right here was a camera lens, and an enormous one at that. I wasted no time, shooting myself up to the eye of the giant machine. And sure enough, there she was, floating a few feet away from the gaping mouth of the lens, staring right into its core. Its diameter was twice her height, and she had a small, sand-colored brick in her hand. It had a keypad on it, and I recognized it immediately. C4 Explosives. Tammy, what are you doing? I worked up the nerve to ask. She just grinned, not taking her eye off the abyss. You, she chuckled. You have no idea what's going on. Give me the explosive, Tammy, I demanded. Her face turned into a frown, and the Lima itself shuddered. I released my grip on it. Don't make them mad, she said, serious. Look, they're waiting. I fought the urge to look into the black abyss so much that it almost hurt, but I succumbed to my curiosity. I looked over the lip of the lens and right into it. The darkness seemed to shift below the surface of the glass, pulsating, moving, like it was a container or the window to a door. The feeling of full eyes returned to me, and I felt warm inside. It felt good to stare. It felt good to be admired by whatever creatures were on the other side. I could hear them speaking to me, telling me that it was alright, telling me that they loved me. And then I remembered at the C4. I pried my eyes and looked at Tammy. Oh, what will that thing do? I asked. They wish to be here with us, in this world so that they can love us forever. She replied in a trance. I almost believed her. Almost. Until I looked down again and felt brain-shattering nausea. A sense of pure disgust washed over me. This thing I knew was no friend of ours. Tammy, I warned, drifting closer to her. Stop. You don't understand this. You don't know what's going on. It's so much bigger than you. She began to scream in anger. Give me the bomb, Tammy. I shouted at her. She grunted, reached into her pocket for something. My hand didn't hesitate. I drew the nail gun fast, aiming it at her, and out of her pocket came a gun. I pulled my trigger, and the inside of her helmet went completely red. Blood and shattered bone spurted out of her helmet directly at me, covering my visor. I smacked it with both hands, trying to wipe it off as best as I could, but it only smeared it around, amplifying the horror that I had just committed. I couldn't keep my heart rate down any longer, and it began to beat faster. I began to panic, and my palms became sweaty. Her body slowly rotated backward, stiff as a board, and the C4 drifted out of her hand. I grabbed it firmly and then launched it directly at Mars as hard as I could. I drifted backward after the throw and stabilized myself with the pressure pack. They say that you can't hear anything in space. Well, they're wrong. 
Behind me, a roar emanated from the end of the telescope that sounded like the grinding of a chalkboard, vibrating my bones. I slowly turned towards it, dreading what I might see, and found that in the black abyss of the lens, another eye looked back. It was black, but the pupil looked like the static on a television screen. The eye took up the entire area of the lens. I couldn't help but feel like I was going to die. The scream started again and my body began to tingle. I looked down at my suit wondering what the heck was going on and found that I could see through it partially, like I was only half there. Suddenly, the C4 that I had thrown in the other direction whizzed by my head and hit the shuttle that I had arrived in. It exploded on contact with a brilliant light, sending debris everywhere. And the lens, it cracked. Black tendrils began to reach out, looking for something to hold on to. I happened to be right there, and their inky black hands gripped my torso, bringing me closer into the black abyss. I began to hyperventilate. My mouth tasted a bile. The visor was still covered with a blood and skull, and the bone-shattering cry came again from the inside of the lens. It pulled me closer and closer. My body became easier to see through despite me clawing at the ink, and the only thing that I could think to do was use the nail gun. And so I fired it right into the crack over and over again. On my last shot, I heard a cry of pain. The tendrils receded blindingly fast, and the feeling of full eyes went away. But in all the motion, the creature pulled Tammy through, busting a person-sized hole in the glass, leaving me to wonder if it would come out. And then nothing. Silence. Just me, a broken telescope, and a blown-up ship. It took me longer than it should have, but when I looked down, I realized that my body was no longer there. I was a ghost. A floating ball of consciousness with nowhere to go. I couldn't feel my limbs. Couldn't touch my fingers together. Nothing. My body was gone. And that's what they do. You look into your cameras every day and they watch you back. They copy you, mimic you, and become you. They want out and they'll get out. I watched in horror as a copy of me with no suit on drifted out of the hole in the lens. It looked at me with pitch black eyes and static pupils, smiled, and floated towards a bright light in the distance. No, a shuttle in the distance. It all made sense. The quick transmission, the different voices. There is a ship following us, and that creature was about to board it. I moved through space without a thruster, without an effort, like I was a god. I tried to scream, Control! Control! I yelled, but of course, nobody heard me. I began to sob. I began to flail around, trying to get myself to move and catch up to them. Nothing worked. I kept wondering what it would do with my body, why those people wanted to free that creature. I wondered what had happened to me and why I couldn't move. And most of all, I wondered why blood and shattered skull were still clouding my vision. I'm not sure what that thing did with my body. I still haven't found out. It took me 10 years to learn how to move my new form, 
and two more to learn how to use a computer. But here I am telling you my story, giving you a warning. Don't look directly into a camera. Any lens with an opening larger than a quarter is a no-go. And whatever you do, never get near a broken lens. Finally, if someone close to you suddenly becomes obsessed with photography, run the other way. They want you too. I found something much worse than the dark web. It's called the light web. Written by In the Tharn. You don't know me and I don't know who you are, so let's keep it at a safe distance. There is something that I have to tell you, and who knows, maybe it could cool off a couple of wandering minds in their searches for relics of the web. I bet that you've already heard a couple of hundreds of times about the dark net, the deep web, and that kind of stuff. A set of non-indexed internet pages on these servers that stay under the radar, where you can get all sorts of stuff. Drugs, weapons, documents, information. A bunch of stories went viral and made it to the national news. They say that you can hire a hitman there or buy a kidney. But trust me, since the thing went above the surface, all you can do there is book an FBI visit straight to your door. But as thousands of web pages emerge every single day, there will always be a corner that no one has checked yet. I am what you might call a net stalker. People love labels, they make things easier to understand and categorize. In my spare time, I like to browse through the web and discover things no one else has heard about. Sometimes I even get contracts from the big guys to do some penetration testing, and I'm just one of the many. Think of it as a hobby that sometimes pays well. I was there before the whole Silk Road thing exploded. I was there when the group of individuals went on a raid to shut down the network of shady sites with disturbing content. And I'm still here and a couple of my aliases are known in certain circles. But this ain't no bragging. What I'm trying to say is, I'm no joke. And I'm out here to tell crappy horror stories about internet cannibals. I'm here to tell you about the thing that I recently found. This thing is called Lightweb. And I want you to never make the same mistake that I did. It's actually not that hard to trip on it. Yes, you need a certain browser to access the thing, and no, it's not Tor, an I2P, or anything more complex. In fact, you would need a specific version of Internet Explorer. And since it's pretty much obsolete, I sort of feel safe to make this confession. It seems that Netscape Navigator works too. From a technical point of view, both browsers had a critical vulnerability at the time that would allow injection of scripts directly into the application. So, frankly speaking, technically it finds you rather than vice versa. And to actually get access, you have to visit one of the web pages for housewives with tons of clickbait ads and clicksum. If you're lucky enough, after five to 10 steps down the rabbit hole, you'll get a blank page with no URL given. 
It will be a plain white page with a couple of forms requesting your name and email and a submit button. And that's where the fun begins. I remember doing it for the first time when I've entered the address from a freshly created 10 minute mail. Imagine my surprise when the page refreshed with the right text message. We are terribly sorry, but it seems that you are using a temporary mail account. Please enter your real mail account. Have a lovely day. I have no idea how they managed to pull that off. Must have been a really tight algorithm to track the origin of the mail, keeping track of the list with questionable domains. Imagine my confusion as I've said, alright fine, and I created a dummy gmail box to input instead and saw the message. We are terribly sorry but we do not accept freshly created email accounts. Please enter your real mail account, have a lovely day. Man, the thing was real. Actually, it sounds insane. But it wouldn't surprise me if these guys had backdoors in the most unexpected places. Besides, this could be a pet project of some board engineer in the company. A lot changed since don't be evil morphed to do the right thing, I'm just saying. So, just to make sure that I fired up some accounts with some other services, same result. At that point, my curiosity had skyrocketed. What could possibly be hidden beyond these gates? I had to know. So I punched in one of my older email addresses, and put Matt as my username and hit submit. And to clarify some things, I'm not stupid to use a mailbox that had tracking, and no, Matt is not my real name. But I'll get there eventually. The page changed. The forms had disappeared and only a single line of text was sitting in the center of it. Welcome, Matt. We'll return to you shortly. Enjoy your day. Bah, pre-moderated accounts, really? I thought back then. Later that evening, I received a message. I know you're going to question my expertise after what I'm going to say now, but I kid you not, it happened. I received a mail from a non-existent sender. And when I say non-existing, I mean it has no address. The info in the header just said, from blank. That was some next level stuff, or at least I had never seen anything like it. The body of the message read, Hello and welcome, Matt. We are happy to see you in our small yet happy community of LightWeb. We're really glad that you made it. LightNet is a place where we tend to maintain things nice and cozy for every member out there. Please, be the better version of yourself when you talk to people. There is no place for negativity, foul language, aggression, mocking, dirty jokes. The list went on. My first impression was that I had hit a local community of Orthodox Mormons minus the God, plus the tech skills. We hope that you enjoy your stay with us. Just remember not to break our rules and to spread the light. Best regards. Mrs. Goodwin. Wow, that was quite something. Like a group of elite tech-savvy care bears or something. The email also contained a URL leading somewhere unknown. As hovering over or inspecting the page element and dev console, showed just an empty string. But as I was safe and sound, running my crap in a sandbox of a virtual machine, I clicked it. The next thing I saw before me was a website utilizing the best traditions of the early 2000s design. 
all colors and background images. Do you guys remember the glory days of MySpace? That kind of stuff. A large header on top of the page shouted, Welcome to LightWeb, the place for nice people. There were a couple of dozens of links underneath, some sort of news feed in a chat. I had suddenly jumped as my headphones exploded with Beach Boys, Good Vibrations, the intro. I nearly had a heart attack. Yeah, back in the days, the peak of your taste demanded to include an audio clip or a song to play once the page was fully loaded. Most of the time, it was something silly like, Welcome to my webpager. Keith here, how you doing? But some individuals went all the way down and uploaded music tracks, which resulted in horrific loading times. Especially if you were a lucky owner of a 33,600 kilobyte per second modem. But as I've lowered the volume down and went to look through the hyperlinks, my eyebrows went up. Mike's Garage, Betty's Cooking Class, How to Be a Good Partner, Gardening Tips and Tricks. Like what the heck was I looking at? Was my exact thought. Who would build this to host BS that multiplies uncontrollably on Facebook and Food Network? I couldn't understand. Was it just another layer to hide something much more seriously deep underneath? So I've clicked a couple of links and I dug into reading. Some guy was asking the best way to get rid of mites. The very next comment suggested different solutions from a certified pest control worker. And the one below offered to drop by with a box of the stuff. Some lady asked if there was someone willing to help remove the furniture around her house. And there were three pages of posts from people who offered to help out. Free doctor checkups, stuff giveaways, party invitations, dog walking, babysitting. And suddenly I realized, this place was like a holy unicorn compared to the regular internet. There was not a single word of rough criticism, envy, shameless self-promotion and attempts to be seen. Those people communicated as if they were a big, cheerful family. And that family didn't even have that one uncle. It was all there, a perfect utopia. A community that could not possibly exist due to human nature. Each one of us tend to slip into the darker corners of ourselves. Yet it was a perfect example that everyone stating, evil and I was wrong. Or at least those people put in some inhuman efforts not to show their flaws. Any question you had... Any life problem that you got, you could be heard and you could get help. Unbelievable. Pretty soon I started to realize how the whole thing functioned. First of all, there was no anonymity. Everybody used their real names. Would it be Jack in Manchester or Nijibuli in Munich? Surprisingly, I discovered that my neighbor downstairs, Mrs. Reyes, was a part of it too. There she was, holding a pot with a ficus giving tips on houseplants, smiling in the picture. So when I saw her post a message reading, help needed, taking a cat to the vet clinic, I didn't hesitate and I went straight to her door. Yes? She asked as she inspected me through the crack with a door chain hanging there as a safety measure. Hey, I would like to help with your cat problem. Just read your post and since we're neighbors, I replied. Excuse me, but do I know you, young man? She stared back at me. 
I'm your neighbor. I saw your post on the light web and I didn't give up. The what? Look, I don't really want any trouble. Please just go away. She mumbled as the door closed before me. Wow, that wasn't very friendly, was it? But I'm a quite persistent person, you know. So I went upstairs and I posted a reply. Hi again, Mrs. Reyes. We just talked at your door. I'm still here if you change your mind. Have a great day. Thirty minutes later, I was distracted with a knocking at my door. There she was smiling with a tray of fresh cookies. I'm sorry, young man. I don't really trust strangers. But now I know that you're mad and we're in the same club. So, these are for you and Yaz, please. I would like you to take me in mittens to the vet clinic later this week. Doing good things to people always returns the favor, and it makes you feel great. My heart was singing. Just yesterday, I was an antisocial creep, who spent all of his time in front of computer screens, and today, I'm eating chocolate chip biscuits and helping the nice old lady. But pretty soon, I learned that I had made a fatal mistake. I had felt guilt. You see, entering a fake name when you lurk into the layer of potential weirdos is one thing. But when it happens that those weirdos are the nicest people that you've ever met, it's quite the opposite. It felt wrong to go by a fake name, as truth always comes out. That's right. So I made the most stupid decision possible. I wrote a message to Mrs. Goodwin, who seemed to be the leader of the whole thing, explaining how sorry I was about not telling my real identity, as I thought that I was navigating into some shady lair. But now, as I saw the beautiful idea behind the light web, I'm sincerely regretting my actions. I hope you understand. Thank you. I finished the message. A couple of moments later, I get the notification for a new mail. It said, Hi, I completely understand the case here, and yes, it never hurts to be extra cautious sometimes. I won't blame you for that. Just please make sure to be truthful from now on. Respect your fellow users, and never lie again, Kyle. I choked at my saliva. How could she possibly know my real name? I'm 100% that my email address has never made it to the public. There were no credit cards associated with it. No deliveries or business discussed with it. But then it clicked. That's probably Mrs. Reyes. She saw my post envelopes. I heard some food delivery guys asking my name. And a part of me went, Mo, you're a snitch, old bag. But another part was like, yeah, it makes sense. I would definitely not tolerate some pretenders in this community either. The next time that I logged on, my username was changed to Kyle, which made sense. I posted in a couple of places offering help with computers to carpool and something else. I can't really recall at the moment. It felt right. Give and take and give and take. A couple of weeks after I was all over the place, helping people, setting up wireless networks in their houses, getting paid with a home dinner and pleasant talks about things we had in common. Mr. Burris, the Jacobsons, Rita, Kelly and Josh, Oscar and Jack. I made a ton of new friends. And vice versa, each time I had a need, there was always somebody for me. As I had some plumbing incident, I got a gentleman to come over the same day. No fee. I sprained my ankle and was unable to drive to the hospital. 
a qualified nurse had treated me with a smile. I even got my love life sorted out. There was a stunning girl named Lily that I had met answering one of the messages from the light web pages. And by stunning, I mean hot. I fell in love with her. She thought that I was smart and cute, so we hooked up. You know, the regular stuff. Movies, dinners, ice skates. It was nice and fun to spend time with her, and things between us got heated quickly. Up to a point when we finally got to a bedroom. Then it just instantly turned to ashes. How do I say things like this? Lily was into some pretty dirty stuff. Not the one where you get handcuffed to a bed railing. I receive a boot to your nutsack, no. Much, much worse stuff. Disturbing even. And so we broke up. Yeah, I was a fool. She tried to talk to me beforehand, but I got the impression that she's into roleplay or other things. But God, I was wrong. And it hit me harder than I thought. Not that I'm not used to breakups, but this was different. I was heartbroken. I was stupid and I got drunk. Yes, sir. Best way to forget is to down it with scotch. I didn't touch the keyboard for two weeks straight. Waking up in the afternoon in smelly clothing. Throwing in some pizza pockets and heading down to a bar for another round. Clearly I had some problems. But those are not of your concern. So that evening, I crawled back in early. The bartender decided that I had too much for the night. So he refused to serve me. I said screw him and I went straight home where my mini bar was still at my disposal. Holding a glass of fine bourbon with my shaky hand, I decided to log in and maybe ask those nice people to comfort me after a painful heartbreak incident. But instead, I remember seeing her photo with some other guy hugging her from behind as she presented a pregnancy test to the camera. The text read, We are happy to announce that we're pregnant. I fell to the floor, dropped down to my feet, and this incredible wave of rage built up inside of me from my toes up to my throat. I felt my facial muscles cramp, reacting to the overwhelming anger inside of me. We broke up two weeks ago. Two weeks and you not just get another guy by the time, oh no. You're already pregnant with him. You trash. It's not my proudest, but it was all that I could think of. So, was it the alcohol in me speaking? or my inability to control my rage and pulses. I didn't think twice to tell her everything about her, him and their freaking baby. I was quite graphical in my expressions, making sure to hit the hardest. I clicked the post button, finished the bottle and passed out right there, without even making it back to my bed. Waking up in a dried crust of my own bile was quite unpleasant, yet not the worst news. The notification was blinking in my mail client. Same empty address mailbox. I cursed aloud and went to the bathroom and quickly washed my face to return for consequences. It read, Kyle, I'm afraid that yesterday you have shown the worst possible reaction that is inappropriate for any decent human being. Your actions show that you're a pathetic failure that doesn't deserve to be a part of the light web. Your account will be terminated immediately. We do not tolerate such behavior and consider you a threat to our project. Have a rest of your life, Mrs. Goodwin. And yes, as I've tried to log in, I couldn't even get to the forum page anymore, no matter what I did. 
I've tried my laptop, I used a VPN and proxy, but nothing worked. As if they had banned me from everything at once. IP, Mac, everything. I tried to send a reply email with my sincerest apologies, but it was bounced back, stating that the address probably didn't exist and a 504 error. Crap, I even went downstairs to see Mrs. Reyes a couple of times, but nobody answered the door. None of my new friends picked up the phone. The numbers which they had handed out so willingly previously, it went straight to voicemail. It was all gone. At the same time, I felt like a ruin of a man. I clearly had alcohol problems developing. My intoxicated body ate. So I didn't think of anything smarter than driving a couple of blocks down the road to buy some Alka-Seltzer for starters in the drugstore. The next thing I remember were the paramedics and the blood dripping from my broken nose. As I discovered later from the incident report, somebody had messed with the brakes of my car and had jammed the airbag. I was slowly recovering. Luckily, the nose was the only thing that really broke. Comfort and sleep was all that I asked for. And the doctor was nice enough to put me on the dropper to help with the alcohol withdrawal symptoms. But this wasn't the end of my misfortunes. Quite the opposite, actually. That night, I saw some nurses through the glass of my ward's door. They were discussing something, whispering to each other. And I didn't like how they stared at me. Call me paranoid, but my sixth sense told me to get out of there. As I was opening the door to my apartment, I saw some fresh scratches in the lock plate. As if you get the point. I didn't dare to go inside, I just left the key sticking there. Yeah, I know, it makes no sense to you, right? Just some bucko who went nuts after getting kicked in the head with a wheel, but trust me, they were everywhere. I couldn't call the police. Why? Because Mr. Burrs was the head of it. I remember him talking about his plans for retirement in a couple of years, as I was setting up his son's gaming PC. I couldn't call the feds, or the firefighters, or even any bakery from the neighboring state. The good people knew who I was, and they didn't wish me any good now. So, I just vanished. I'm on the run. Sleeping with the homeless, feeding on what I can. I'm writing this now from a public library. I had persuaded the librarian that I needed to send emails to my relatives so they could come over and pick me up after a failed attempt to settle in this country. She was kind enough to believe my lie. Just don't watch anything bad, please. There are kids in here, she said. I grew a thick beard and practically became one with my beanie in the hood. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't believe I looked like the man from six months before, under all this dirt and hair. I do not seek salvation or forgiveness, and it's too late for saying sorry. This lifestyle made me do some horrible things to survive. My goal now is to spread the word to you, stranger. Just if you are as curious as I tended to be, and if you are also a nutstalker, stay away from Lightweb. Just like any form of drug, it takes you high just to smash down low. I don't think that I'll see another sunrise. As I'm finishing my confession, I see a notification on the screen. I hover the cursor and I click the bell to see the couple of the first lines. Hey Kyle, aren't you supposed to write your relatives? I'm sorry, Lily.
I've been in a control group for metaverse beta testing. Please stay away from it. Written by In Latharn. Let's get it straight. I'm not afraid of what comes after. Would it be trials, imprisonment, or something much worse? I'm afraid that if it is not me, nobody would leak the truth. So I'm blowing the whistle. Just for the sake of my own frail sense of safety, I won't share any personal info. All of the names are random and all the matches are coincidental. We live in a crazy world, right? A couple of decades ago, people couldn't even imagine the technologies that are present in your smartphone, laptop, or gaming console. We are standing on a brink of a day that will introduce us to a new coil of attack breakthrough spiral. With all these crypto, blockchain, NFT, deep learning things the internet brags about lately, it is more than obvious. And yes, those don't look very reliable at this point. And I personally think that not all of the above will see another year. But the point is, back in the days, nobody thought that you could watch HD videos on the screen of your phone while chatting with a person living on another continent over a gaming app with photorealistic avatars that use motion capture. You get the point. Deny it or not, we're at this stage of human history. I work for a company that is responsible for one of those apps. A really popular one, you might imagine. Holding the key role in my department, making magic happen, but enough with the bragging. About a month ago, we received the official proposal from the big guys. They were asking if we would like to get a sneak peek into the metaverse, so that we would understand the technology, our capabilities and limitations, and be the ones among the first to port our product into their VR environment. And we agreed instantly. As you know, you either stay in trance or go down with the history. So, a week ago, we received some dev kit stuff, dozens of devices, access permissions, and nearly a box of paperwork, metaphorically speaking, as all the forms and manuals came in digital. And they sent in some stuff too. A couple of guys named Jack and Beth came along to monitor the testing, answer questions, and ask their own too. Now, this wasn't a big surprise as we had had similar experiences in the past when some new features were introduced. But would you believe me if I say that it took me no less than three hours to read through all the agreement forms and sign all the NDA documentation? There was a lot of it. I'll spare you the details about handshaking and chit-chats, the devices that happen to be modified versions of the Oculus Quest 2 were distributed between folks in the office. We made sure that each department had at least one, so we could get a better picture and a wide range of opinions, and we picked the day of the week to give it a go. And so, the testing had started. It feels like I need to make a remark here. I'm not a stranger to a VR technology in general. I myself have an HTC Vive at home and like to drop by VR chat to slice some fun on a Beat Saber. So, if you're expecting the... Wow, it was like the real world thing here. It wasn't. But to be completely honest, the visuals were better, yes. I think the Quest supports higher resolutions and 
they achieve some great things with 3D sound and built-in speakers. But I'm not sure if the regular market ones have the same. I don't know it. But yeah, there we were. Just like in the presentation video, there was the beach location in the house, and all 12 of us. The first session wasn't that much fun, as everybody explored avatar creation, choosing from hundreds and hundreds of hairstyles, costumes, accessories. Actually, it was quite impressive how the whole thing handled that amount of data seamlessly, because I would expect a massive client download for that type of thing. But no, just with your browser window, you could browse and apply thousands of things on the fly. After an hour, as we finished, Jack and Bath gathered us and asked us about our thoughts so far. If anybody felt motion sickness or headaches, nothing that you wouldn't expect. The next day, after lunch, we were gathered again to give it a second try. Nothing alerting here too, we checked the possibilities, got used to controls and explored the features, such as reaction emoticons, default items like the paintbrush, firecrackers, and musical instruments. Some of the folks wandered around our virtual beach and tried to interact with the world objects. One of our artists was able to stick a rock he picked up behind the sky texture, and that crashed the whole scene for a moment. So as you might have guessed, it's still pretty raw and bugs are aplenty. The next day, the next session, this time we started with questions from the meta people again. They asked if anyone experienced disturbed sleep, fatigue, headaches. Again, nothing extraordinary. All these symptoms happened to those trying on VR headsets. That day, we tried some built-in games like Beach Volleyball, which pretty much explains the gathering point theme, now as I think of it. Probably they were prototyping and picked the beach just because it was dawn already for the presentation, but that's just my guess. Table tennis too and some game about catching falling stars. Yet again at this point you might ask, What was the point of your story man? What's the threat? I hear you but please bear with me, as I'm trying to make the point obvious to you. Sometimes the most horrible things lurk in plain sight. Hidden behind a thin tapestry showing you the sweetest and innocent things. The next day we shared the experience with other teams. Yeah, we were not the only ones participating, so that kind of makes me feel a little bit better for the reasons that I've described above. It was actually pretty impressive, and there were at least 36 fully detailed animated avatars in a single location in a real time. We spoke to each other via built-in microphones, as somebody changed the location settings to snow. We were able to play with snowballs and so on. The physics of the materials is something unbelievable. You can almost feel making snowballs as you gave them shape with controllers, and those vibrated lightly as you pushed the hands together, while the soft crunching sound played in the headset, resembling the real thing. And did I mention the water in the clouds? Anyways, after this session I had the questions to ask, but thanks to my colleague, it was he to go ahead and shoot it. How do you guys manage to pull this off? I think that server loads could possibly melt the rack that they're standing on, or something like that. And Jack just smiled and Beth replied, I would just wait for tomorrow as we're going to give it a real test. 
and then it was their turn to question us. It was all regular again, up to the point where one of them asked, And did any of you at any point of the session witness him? We sat there blanking in confusion, silent, but Beth, I think, just said, well, Okay, please, never mind. Next question. Maybe that was some sort of sanity check, just to make sure that we follow and our minds don't just wander somewhere else. I don't know, but yes, it was weird. The next day, as I was grabbing a coffee in the kitchen after the meeting, one of my colleagues who participated in the test stopped by and asked if I had any weird dreams lately. I knew the guy very well. We were hired in the same month back in the days, so I'm quite sure that he is not of that sensitive type. No, I replied. Why? It's just, I've been seeing things for the past couple of nights in my dreams. I mean really disturbing things. It's like I'm a completely different person, and I know stuff in my sleep that I never knew before. I don't know, it's hard to explain. Uh, never mind, forget it. Probably just some stress kicking in. But no, nothing like that. I have slept like a baby and I was full of energy as we began the next round of testing. This time, there were even more people present. I think the number was closer to 70, maybe 80. I'm not really sure. And while all of us stood there, chatting or simply spectating, the thing called Max Load Graphical Test went on. Think of it as a light show. It was a bunch of different complex pictures appearing in the sky, visualizing geometrical shapes, symbols, graphs, and such. Very intense, very vivid, and very bright. I must admit that it was beautiful. If anyone would experience that there, I'm pretty sure the whole concept would get much more anticipation. And then different objects started to appear right in front of us. Cute puppies waving their tails. Strawberry cakes on plates. Misted mugs of beer with rich foam. And tiny transparent drops running by the side. This was a next-gen type of thing. It was just like the real thing. I felt a strange urge to reach my hand and give it a touch. And when I say this, I don't mean with my controller. No, like a real touch. Suddenly I realized that the voice inside of my head kept repeating. Oh, it's so good. I want that now. I must have it now. And I felt my mouth watering. But suddenly... The bowl with hot chicken wings wet floated in front of me got glitched. At first, the steam became static, and then some colored lines appeared at crisscrossing it, and finally the whole thing froze. I looked around, as if breaking out of my mesmerized state. Others stood there frozen, as if only I could move, and the next thing that happened was a sound of someone sobbing. Like real sobbing, not in the speakers. I took off the gear and looked around. One of my colleagues looked absolutely devastated. Tears running down her cheeks. Making it to the hand that she used to cover her mouth with the controller. Still in it as her shoulders were shaking. While she was clearly weeping, attempting to make it silent. I came up to her and touched her by the shoulder. No reaction. I called her by her name and it was the same. I shook her lightly. She went on with the crying and suddenly began to hyperventilate. 
This is no Matrix movie, I said to myself and put my hands onto her headpiece, planning to take it off. But as I did, I saw her eyes. God, the look in it shot me through as if I was hit by a snowstorm. She was looking straight through me as if gazing into a vast nothingness, with eyes so full of terror that I could barely see the pupils of her eyes, and they shrunk to a size of a pin needle. As soon as she realized that she was not in the metaverse anymore, her hand went down helplessly. Her face, distorted from the weeping, stood motionless for a moment, and then she started to scream. I had never seen anybody screaming like that. There was something primal in it. Primal as in fear. I panicked, freezing in place as her spit landed on my face, paralyzed by this unexpected act. Thoughts were running places, but before I got a good one, I was broken out of my stupor by another scream to the left of me. And another. And yet another one. The whole room was full of people screaming their lungs out. Finally, I got a hold of myself and ran out of the room to call for help. But as I did, I saw people rushing in, wearing what I thought were paramedic uniforms. It took me almost half an hour to get a grip and finally calm down. As I was sitting in the kitchen, surrounded by my colleagues, trying to make me feel better, and asking what had happened in there, we saw the guys in the uniforms rolling these stretchers here and there. Some of the people in them had blankets over their faces. My god. Of course, we never saw Jack and Beth after the incident. Our CEO called Metis head office directly to discuss the horrible events, but they stated that those people were never employed or associated with their company. What a bunch of liars. I took some extra days off from work and that didn't raise any questions, obviously. Two days after, I decided that I can't remain silent anymore. Screw it. They'll probably figure out me sooner or later, as I mentioned uh, some key details to the incident. I can't say that I came out of it traumatized or questioning my sanity, but there is one thing that has actually been bothering me lately. I started to have this weirdest dream, where I'm standing in some sort of basement, surrounded by huge shelves with machines buzzing and blinking rhythmically. I make a couple of steps forward to see what is at the center of the room, and it's more like a who than a what. It lies on the floor with a feeding tube attached to its multiple holes. There are a lot of wires and screens and other devices, the purpose of which I cannot understand. As I step closer, and it splits its heads in half to reveal... The myriad of eyes that I can hear, the thoughts forming in my head. The thoughts that are mine. The thoughts that don't belong to this world. I wake up instantly at this point, covered in cold sweat and tears, shaking to the bone. Each time I see that dream, and that happens every time I put my head to rest, I keep staying there longer and longer. I'm afraid that at some point there will be no return. So I beg of you, please stay away from the metaverse when it hits the public.
They won't stop watching me. Written by Ran Ryder. Entry 1 5 2 18. Back in therapy, Dr. Schultz told me that whenever I had strange thoughts, I should write them down. And that's the reason I started this journal. I'm not sure what it is, but in these past weeks, I had the feelings that strange things were going on. I think people are watching me. I live in a massive apartment building. The flats are small but affordable. There is one problem. The missing solitude, peace, and especially privacy. Knowing that dozens or even hundreds of people live in the same building is a suffocating thought. It had been bothering me ever since I had moved in. The apartment building is part of an extensive residential area. There is nothing but rows and rows of similar buildings next to each other. They are only divided by small recreational areas between them. The closeness of the buildings makes living here a bit awkward. When I first moved in, I had no blinds or curtains. I felt a bit naked to be honest. Anyone from the adjacent buildings was able to watch me. I knew that it was irrational. It wasn't like I was interesting or attractive. Once I got my blinds, they were almost perpetually closed, and they were a godsend. I got to admit though, at times it was tempting to go outside and risk a peek at other people. You could catch a couple during an argument or someone acting weird. At one time, he even saw some dude watching something he shouldn't have been with the blinds wide open. Unfortunately, it goes both ways. If I was able to watch other people, they could watch me too. In the colder months, that was fine. Once it got warmer though, more and more people spent time on their balconies. It makes it awkward to do the same. I hate people watching me, and I always did. Like I had done last year, I kept the blinds closed. This year too, I felt watched, and I couldn't explain it, but it made my skin crawl. It was like the feeling that you get when someone's eyes focus on you. It was ridiculous. I had the blinds closed, and no one could look inside. As always, it was just my imagination. My brain was acting up again and playing tricks on me. God knows it likes to do those things. Over time, I couldn't deny it anymore, though. I wasn't sure if it was only on my mind. A couple of weeks ago, I was proven right. A man over in the other building looked straight at me. I pushed it off as a coincidence, a trick of the moment. Every time I looked over, though, I saw the same guy. At first, I felt that I was paranoid, stupid even. Who knows, the guy might sit outside all day, enjoying the nice weather. Every time I went to the blinds, though, there was this feeling of apprehension. What if he was there again? I told my brain to drop it, to ignore it, and that all as well. It didn't matter, though. Whenever I looked, he was there. Today, it wasn't just him either. 
On a different balcony, I saw a woman staring at me as well. As I gazed over the building, I found other people too. They were all doing the same thing. Watching me. And the weirdest part is that they didn't stop. They didn't just look once or twice and go back to their business. No, they continued to watch. I felt myself freaking out. So I started to write this down. It always helped me to clear my head and to keep calm. What I can say is that this is too weird. I'm sitting here sweaty all of a sudden. Maybe they all weren't looking at me. Entry 2. 5-6-18 I am sure that I do not imagine things. When I look, those people stop right in their tracks and start watching me. Every single time they are there. Heck, as I said, their eyes are glued on me. Entry 3. 5-8-18 I'm catching myself looking out more and more often. I'm telling myself that it's all in my head and the next time I look out there, there is no one there anymore. The problem is, every time I am confronted with this weird reality, more and more people seem to join in every single day. First, it was only two or three, but now it's dozens. There is no way this is a coincidence. Entry 4, 5, 10, 18. And today I dusted off the old binoculars. It was time to give those people a bit of a closer look. It felt a little wrong to use them like this. I had got them for something different, but oh well. How did they even see me? I'm hiding behind the blinds and only ever look for a moment. But still, they notice me in an instant. Entry 5 five eleven eighteen. Are they all talking to each other? Do they all get together and choose me as a target to mess with? Do they know that I don't like to be watched? Is that why they're doing it? Entry 6 five fifteen eighteen. 18 Alright, enough is enough. I'm done with this. For the past weeks, I spent my free time thinking about this and staring at people. Staring at people who just stare back at me. It is not only weird, but stupid. Really freaking stupid. If I stop to give them attention, I'm sure they'll stop looking. Entry 7, 519, 18. 11.22 AM. I ignored them for days. Yesterday, I even went out with Tom and a few other friends. We went to a party, had a few beers, and we hung out together. It was a pretty nice evening. First time in a long while that I had fun. This morning I ruined things. Hungover as I was, I prepared myself some coffee. And then, without thinking, I decided to air this musty place out a bit. As soon as the blinds were up, I felt their glances on my body. It gave me quite the scare to see all those people looking at me. I took a step back in shock and after a few seconds... I closed the blinds again. A few minutes later, I peeked outside once more, trying not to move the blinds at all. They are still there, even now.
an hour later. Entry 8, 5-19-18, 2-33pm. The more that I keep watching them, the more I think this is all set up. It could be a social experiment or a reality show. There is no way you can explain what is happening. The people who are watching must be following cues and instructions. Whoever is behind this might have had cameras installed to monitor my reaction. Are they recording me right now as I type this out? Or is it a dumb prank? Is someone trying to freak me out? Could it be Alex? But how did he get all of those people to join in with him? Entry 9, 5, 19, 18, 7.14 p.m. I've been racking my brain all day. Are they trying to get a reaction from me? Do they want me to watch them? Are they trying to provoke me? Is that why they're keeping me under this sort of surveillance? Well then, I'm provoked. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to sit right there and watch you. Let's see how you react to this. Do you like to see me check you out with those binoculars? Oh, I hope you do. Entry 10, 5-19-18, 10-52pm. Well, that grand plan of mine did absolutely nothing. Everything was the same and they kept it up for hours. I don't know how they were able to do this. I don't think they moved at all. They are standing completely still. This is ridiculous. They are still standing outside. It is dark by now. They shouldn't even be able to see me anymore. Not outside of the balcony and not in here. Why haven't they moved yet? Entry 11, 51018, 1.17am. This has turned from ridiculous to scary. Even when I look out now, I can vaguely make out their silhouettes in the dark. They must all still be on their balconies. I've checked every couple of minutes, but nothing changes. This is the first time since this all started that I am seriously freaked out. Come on, calm down, calm down, calm down. I'm going to bed now. I made sure that every door and window were closed. Entry 12, 52018, 7.47am. I almost couldn't sleep last night. Even in bed I felt watched. It is stupid, yet I still felt their eyes resting on me. All night, I imagined them looking over at my window. Deep inside, I knew that as soon as I went to bed, they all went inside. I imagined them congratulating each other, shaking hands and laughing about how well they had played me. The worst part was the nightmare that followed. I dreamed that I stood in the middle of a vast square, an endless number of people surrounded me. They were all staring at me. No one said a word. And then they all started to close in on me. I woke up screaming. That was enough sleep, I told myself, and I got up. It was morning anyways. The first thing before I typed this out was to look out again. Of course, they're all already there. How could it have been any different? I wasn't even surprised. Entry 13, 
5-20-18, a.m. I talked to my neighbor, that dang grumpy old geezer. I had to ring a few times before he opened the door. I heard no footsteps or any other noises. And that's how I knew he had been standing behind the door all this time, watching me through the spyglass. When I didn't leave, he had no other choice but to open. I asked him if he had seen or noticed anything strange going on outside of the building opposite of ours. He stared at me for a few seconds, shook his head and mumbled something to himself before closing the door again. Yeah, right, screw you too. After he had closed the door, I felt his eyes watching me through the spyglass. Once I was inside, I wondered if he was a part of it too. It wouldn't be too far-fetched. It fit his character perfectly. I saw it in my mind now. Him standing behind his door all day, keeping a lookout for me and giving them information. That must be how they know if I'm home or not. He's giving them the information. Entry 14, 5-20-18, 2-54pm. I had been fuming ever since I got back from my neighbor's. Was this whole area involved? This was starting to get to me. I had to talk to someone. I had to show them what was going on here. I tried recording from inside or from my balcony, but you couldn't see enough. I have to go outside. I'm going to record the insanity that is going on here. Once I have it on video, I can show everyone. Heck, I can post it on YouTube. And then I've got them. Entry 15, 5-2018, 6-37pm. Not good. Not a good idea at all. I stormed outside all right, and the first thing I saw was the parents near the playground staring at me. As I walked, they kept track of me, whispering to one another. I ignored them until I saw their faces. They were grimacing, some even pointing at me. So, of course, I started filming them. I ignored when someone yelled at me. There's a good chance that they are involved in this whole thing, too. Still filming, I made my way to the building, and I went right for an old man who had been staring at me ever since this morning. I yelled at him and asked what he was doing. As I expected, I got no answer. No movement, either. I yelled at him once more. And then I went to the next person, an older lady, and I filmed her. It wasn't long before some sweaty weirdo in a muscle shirt came over to me. He asked me in a harsh voice what I thought I was doing. I couldn't film people without their permission, especially the kids in the playground. I said nothing and I kept at it. Screw that guy, I thought. And to make a long story short, he grabbed my phone and got angry and told me to get the heck out of here or that he would call the police. At first, I wanted to argue, but a crowd had already formed. All that attention made me really uneasy. I stammered that if he returned the phone, that I would get out of there. When he finally did, I almost ran back. And that weirdo dared to yell after me and call me a nutjob. Yeah, right, I was the crazy one here. Not all of them. I could even hear them whisper all around me. That's him, right? 
Isn't that the guy? I saw how they looked at me. When I called them out, I only got stares back. I knew that they were hiding their smiles and laughter. At this moment, I knew that everyone out there was involved. I knew that they were planning their next step while I was standing right between them. Once back inside, I suffered from a severe panic attack. It was the first one in a long while. I couldn't do anything other than lay on my bed, breathe slowly, and try to calm down. Once it was finally over, I typed this out. Entry 16, 5-20-18, 7-11pm. I tried to send the video to my friends, but that weirdo must have deleted it when he got a hold of my phone. Come on. Entry 17, 5-24-18, 6-06am. I didn't do much for three days. Got up, went to work in the morning, and spent the evening playing games. I was tempted to look outside, but I could resist. At least until now. I looked, and they were all back at it. Why are there so many people on their balcony at a time like this? Like, what are they doing? Didn't they have to get to work? If not, why weren't they asleep? How can they all do this at 6 in the freaking morning? Entry 18, 524-18, 5.13pm. No change. They are all still there, still looking over here. I can't tell for sure, but I think they didn't move at all. I don't care anymore. I opened the blinds, took out my binoculars, and checked them out in detail. There had to be something. There had to be one single detail that showed me it was all a trick or a farce. They are completely still. Some looked a bit different though. Angrier than the rest and as if they were frozen in motion. Out of nowhere, the dream I had a few days ago came back to me. Are they frozen in forward motion? Looking once more showed me that they were indeed. Does that mean that they're coming for me? Is that why they're in these strange positions? After only a few minutes... I put the binoculars away and closed the blinds. I am not going to think about this. I have to let this go. I have to let this go. I will let it go. Entry 19, 529-18. I did well. I did let it go. I'm going to wait until the summer is over if I have to. I'm not going to get near those blinds, the windows, or the balcony. I even hung out in the city two days ago. It wasn't too nice with all the people around, but it was better than sitting there being watched all day. Entry 20, 6-2-18, to 11pm. I am all alone. There is no help. The police are involved too. Screw them. Screw the police. How can they take part in some stuff like that? But they really are all working together they are all out for me. What the heck do they want? Why are they all playing me? Oh, what can I do? I'm so freaking confused. Entry 21. 6218. 4.07pm. I had to calm down. I was too angry to write down what had happened. The day started off normal. 
I played some games and minded my own business. At one point I realized though that the only thing I heard was the low humming of my computer. It was Saturday and it was summer. The weather was great. I realized that these sounds from the playground were missing. I should have heard the kids playing and yelling. I told myself to let it go. I had been doing well to do so. The more I said those words, the less they worked. Curiosity and fear drove me forward, but I couldn't see the playground from the window. From the balcony, I could see it. Everyone near the playground was frozen, looking towards me. All eyes, those of the parents as well as the kids, were focused on me. I had ignored this thing for almost a week, but they got me again. They got me to look it again. They had to keep pushing me, didn't they? At that moment, I said, screw it, and I called the police. I should have done so so much earlier. I told them that people were spying on me. They were acting strange, and I was scared. When they arrived, I told them the whole story and led them straight to the playground. And well, what do you know? Everything was back to normal. The kids were playing and the adults were chatting. Oh, how surprised they all acted when they saw me with the police. I thought that I had got them now. I told the officers what had been going on before. And the officers went over to talk with the group. I could see one woman gesticulating heavily into my direction. I had smiled, thinking the officer had got her. It turned out that I was wrong. Big surprise. The officers came back to me and asked me which apartment was mine, and I pointed at it. Of course, they asked about the blinds. What the heck did it matter? I told them that it was for protection so people couldn't watch me. And then they dared to ask me if I often watched people. Well, what do you expect? Yeah, I do. I had to find out that they were watching me. I had to check on them. Freaking police. Well, they didn't take to that too well. They asked me about the time that I had been filming people. That lady must have told them. She must have lied about me. I tried to tell them it was to prove the situation around here. I wanted to have evidence of the weird things that were happening. But they cut me off. Instead of listening, they told me that people had complained about me. That I was the one who was watching people, they said. Me. They said that I watched them all day from my balcony. That's absolute BS. I'm not watching anyone. I tried to explain again, but once more, I wasn't allowed to talk. They told me to shut it. I had called them to help me, and they told me to shut up. And that wasn't enough. They told me to get a grip and to go to a freaking psychiatrist. Yeah, right. I go straight back to Dr. Schultz tomorrow. I'll say to him, Hey, Doc, I'm back. The police told me that I should talk to you. I didn't have those problems anymore. He said so himself. And they were full of it. I didn't even listen anymore. I let them talk, but I watched the playground. I saw them. I saw them look at me. They were talking about me, telling each other to get back into position soon. One of the officers snapped a finger in front of me. In the end, they told me to keep quiet, to not film anyone, and that any disturbance of peace and privacy was a serious crime. Yeah, that is a crime, right? 
and they're all doing it. But that's of course not what those two idiots cared about. Once they had left, I went back inside, and that's where I am now. For an hour, I was so mad, I couldn't stop pacing around. Even the freaking police wouldn't help me. But that wasn't it. That wasn't why I was so mad. It was their faces, and I noticed it. That little smile when I told them my story. They were a part of it, too. I had figured it out just now. That's why they didn't help me. The police were involved as well. I don't know why I didn't notice it back outside. Or wait, maybe they weren't even real policemen. Heck, they could be two guys that lived in the building over there. Put on a uniform, play the part, and screw with me a bit more. I looked outside as soon as I had come back inside. And yep, there they were again. It was exactly as I had thought. They're all smiling now. It's because they know they got me again. I am watching them again, and that's what they wanted, right? I am playing your stupid game once more. Entry 22, 6-2-18, 10-21pm. I remembered the dream once again. I had once read that dreams can be premonitions. In the dream, all the people that watched me came closer towards me. Guess what I noticed? They are getting closer. It is slow and barely visible. It is so that I don't notice it. But I did now. It is only a step or two at a time. But they are definitely inching closer. I can see some that are already leaning over their balcony railing. The ones outside too. Even from my windows I can now see the playground group. But when I look they don't move. Why are they doing this? Is it to play with me, to freak me out, to drive me insane, or is it so I keep watching? But I'm freaking out now. Entry 23, 6-3-18, 1-42am. I tried to sleep, but I can't. I got up again, and there are still dark silhouettes outside. They are still at the playground. I can't see them clearly, but I know that they're there. They know I didn't sleep. I tried recording them once again, but my phone isn't working right. Whenever I try to take a picture or record a video, it is nothing but darkness. They don't show up at all. And did that weirdo break it? Come on. This is so absurd, so completely ridiculous. It is almost 2 in the morning and those people are still outside. But they're freaking kids too. I wanted to open the window or the balcony door and scream at them to give it a rest. But they would like that, wouldn't they? Entry 24, 6-4-18, 6-41am. Oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god, no, no, I, I can't. Entry 25, 6-4-18, 8-34am. Okay, I'm calm now. I'm calm. No one can hurt me. I tried something. Spoiler, it was really stupid, and my phone is now gone. I had the grand idea of trying to film people once more. It wasn't even seven. Barely six, and the playground was full of people. When I with my phone in my hand, and I started to take pictures. I leaned forward to get a full view and started filming. 
At that moment, I noticed something out of the corner of my eye. I turned to see what it was. I saw that everyone on that whole side of the apartment building was leaning forward like me, staring at me. They all looked straight at me, right into my eyes. Their expression was angered, their eyes wide. They seemed to almost lean towards me, as if they had come for me at any second. It freaked me out more than anything in my entire life. I screamed, stumbled backward, and set my phone flying. I ran back inside. After an hour, I went back outside to look for my phone, and it wasn't there. It had to have landed somewhere else. I peeked outside once more and prayed that I had imagined things. I had not. Everyone was still there. Not only to the left, but also to the right. I saw my neighbor. His face twisted into a visage of cruel mockery. Even from above, the people were staring at me. I'm laughing as I type this out. None of this makes any sense. It's surreal. Did I slip into a freaking bizarre world? I don't know anymore. Entry 26, 6418, 1.22pm. I completely forgot work. I only remembered it right now. I sent an email to my boss saying that I was sick. I don't even care what he thinks. Entry 27, 6418, 5.44pm. I'm trapped. I'm freaking trapped now. I should have left this place while I still could. After what I saw this morning, I told myself that I should get away. Something bizarre and very, very wrong was going on here. Peg, it had been going on for weeks now. As soon as I had opened my door, I saw that the entire hallway was filled with people. Dozens of them. I yelled out in surprise, expecting them to jump me. But instead, they were all frozen in place, all staring right at me, watching me, and waiting for what I was going to do. I wanted to run. I really wanted to. I wanted to get out of there, there and then. I only took one step forward, and I saw they were all smiling. I saw that they were leaning forward towards me as if they were expecting me to try. They were taunting me to try it. Their arms were outstretched, their hands open in anticipation. I knew that they would grab me as soon as I tried. They wanted me to try running. They weren't just watching me, I realized. They were preying on me. And that's when I threw the door shut and locked it. I ran to the living room, expecting to hear them push against the door. I thought that they had knocked against it or they would try to pry it open. But instead... There was only silence. Everything stayed quiet. Why aren't they doing anything? I screamed at the door why they didn't come and take me. Nothing again. After that, I sent Tom a Facebook message. I knew that he would be worried, but I needed help. I told him how scared I was, that something strange was going on here, and that I didn't know what to do. I'm waiting for his reply now. But so far, he hasn't read my message. Entry 28, 6 4 18, 8 25 p.m. 
Tom still hasn't read my message. I checked through the blinds earlier. They are all getting closer. The people from the other buildings are now outside. Hundreds, maybe even thousands of people are filling this small recreational area. They all look over here. None of them are moving when I watch. And that's why I don't dare to stop. I look outside all the time now. I have to. I can't risk them getting any closer. I can't risk for them to get there. To get to me. Entry 29. 6518. 4.46 a.m. I didn't sleep yet. No answer from Tom. An idea came to me. Are they watching me to see if I'm watching them? Are they trying to sneak up on me? To come here and get me when I'm not watching? So that means that they watch me to see if I'm watching so they know if I'm watching. And if they don't, they come closer. Is that why they're watching so intently? The more I think about it, the more sense that it makes. There can't be any other reason. There never was. I started to laugh so much when I finally understood it. I had to type this out. They are watching me to see if I'm watching them. It's so, so simple. I'm still laughing even now. How stupid I was to not see it earlier. I have to go back to watch now. I have to be serious again. Entry 30, 6, 5, 18, 8, 12 a.m. What is insanity? Things don't make sense anymore. Nothing does at all, at all, at all. I must have passed out at one point and woke up not long ago. I jerked up because I hadn't been watching. I saw, no, I see something impossible. There are dozens of heads looking over from these sides of the balcony. Oh, I know it must be more. It's hundreds. They're all peeking over the sides, all the top one another, and they're all looking straight at me as I'm typing away. That's not the worst, though. What is really so stupid, so stupid is that the ones who look down from the top, from the freaking top, they are upside down and are looking at me. It shouldn't be possible. If they tried that, they would fall down and crash to the ground. Yet I see them. It is absolutely impossible. Are you telling me that they're all using rope? Hundreds of people are dangling down like in Mission Impossible to look into my apartment. It's so stupidly stupid that I'm laughing again. I'm actually going to put on the Mission Impossible theme later. In my mind, I see hundreds upon hundreds of ropes dangling down towards my balcony. This is all impossible. None of it makes any sense. Reality itself is turned to nonsense. This is not a bizarre world. This is a nonsense world. Entry 31. 6, 5, 18, 101 p.m. It's not real, is it? Do I imagine all of this? Was none of it real to begin with? Is there no one out there at all? Maybe it's all just in my head. All in my head. If I go outside, is it all over? Are they all gone and should I do it? What if it is real though? What if they aren't human? Could I be the only human left in this building? Is that why they're all focusing on me? 
No one else is real, and I'm the only real one left. Ah, me, the only real one left. That would be great, and just me. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Entry 32. 6, 5, 18, 11, 04 p.m. I barricaded the place. There are so many of them now, I can't watch them all. Whenever I fall asleep or doze off, they're closer. I never see them move, but they wait till I can't watch anymore. Their hands are reaching out for me. They're climbing onto the balcony already. And they are still watching me. Okay, did I miss anything? The windows are covered up, check. The balcony door is blocked off too, check. The front door and the whole entry area is sealed, check. I still have enough food for a week or two. Entry 33, 6, 6, 18, 9, 12 a.m. I slept again. The doorbell woke me up. I know that they're in front of the door. I am listening and I can hear you. I know you want me to go and open the door. You can try to lure me out all you want, but I won't come. I'm not an idiot. I won't open the door. I'm not falling for any of your silly tricks. Not me. Entry 34, 6, 6, 18, 10, 11 a.m. The balcony is overflowing with people. There's a tiny spot from which I can still watch them. It is because I have to always watch them. There are no sounds and they don't make any sounds. And tell me I think the sound is all but gone. The only sound is the doorbell. It's a trick. Entry 35. 6, 10, 18, 4, 53 p.m. There are hundreds of them on my balcony now. They're all smiling. Is it in anticipation? There are so many. How do they all fit on the balcony? I am laughing again as I watch them. There are too many people out there. It is impossible for hundreds upon hundreds of people to be on my tiny balcony. Yet, they are all there. They are on top of each other, next to each other, filling up the balcony to the top. There are more of them outside. They are coming from all sides. It's as if they are pouring into the balcony, as if some giant is pushing more and more of them inside. It makes no sense. Entry 36, 6, 11, 18, 6, 17 p.m. I got a couple of messages from Tom and he tells me that everything's alright. He talked about how I'm having another one of my episodes. I should come outside. Dr. Schultz is with them and they can help me. I knew that he was with them. Ever since the start I knew it, he always was. Even back in the day. Him and Schultz, two parts of an evil. Now they're ringing again and again and again. Over and over. Are they going to get in soon? What if they break down the door? What if they pour in from the balcony? Nothing to do but wait. Oh, and wait I will. And do and come for me, I'm prepared. I have every knife, every tool, and every other sharp or blunt object. Come in if you want. Come and try to get me, I won't let you. I'm going to fight and fight and kill and fight and kill. There are noises outside again. 
Thank you all, and as always, for listening to this week's lineup. I can't express how much I appreciate your continued support. And if you've made it to the end here, please know that I really appreciate it. I also really appreciate this week's sponsor, HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. I hope your February is going well, and if it's not, well, hey, at least it's the shortest month of the year. March is right around the corner as we keep trucking through 2022, so keep your head high. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, and as always, stay creepy.